Praise the Lord. Thank you, worship team, for leading us in worship through song. And now we have an opportunity to continue to worship the Lord as we go before uh, his word. But before we do, let us pray together. Lord, we are thankful to be uh, gathered in this place, to be gathered online, to worship together as the body of Christ. And during this time of just opening up your word, what a a uh, precious gift it is uh, to be able to uh, hear from the Lord through his word. Uh, Lord, we ask that the Spirit of God go before us, uh, reveal uh, the truths that we need uh, so desperately to hear and to be reminded of this morning, and and let the Spirit of God uh, give us desire and guide us and give us power uh, to live within the boundaries of those truths. That is where uh, true life is found. In the great name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. If you would open your Bibles to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, we're going to continue where we left off last week. We'll specifically be in verses 153 through 160 this morning. If you're joining with us on campus and you do not have a copy of God's Word, I would encourage you to look underneath the seat in front of you or underneath the seat that you're sitting in. There should be a blue Bible there. I would encourage you to take that Bible, open up to page 573. Uh, 573. We are in our 20th message in this amazing chapter of Psalm 119. Uh, We have two more to go uh, after this morning, and God has been so good to to show us the importance, the centrality of who he is, the centrality of uh, the word, and how important that is to our life. And and that's what I love about uh, this particular uh, chapter in the Psalms is, is 98% of the verses uh, include some type of reference to uh, the word of the Lord and how important it is for God's word to anchor our lives. And I pray that it has been a blessing uh, to you. Uh, last week in our Kof, uh, stanza, uh, the psalmist in verses 145 through 152 was in a time of intense prayer before the Lord. Uh, the scripture says that he was crying out with his whole heart, Uh, He was uh, meditating and going before the Lord in prayer and to his word early in the morning and and late at night. And and, and he's trusting that the Lord and his faithfulness will meet him where he is uh, in that moment. And the psalmist this morning is continuing that time of prayer. It's a new section. It's a new uh, stanza. It's led by the Hebrew letter uh, Resh. And so what we've done every week is we've been able to appreciate uh, God's wisdom and how he lays out uh, the word of the Lord, specifically in the Hebrew language here. Uh, The Resh uh, letter there on the right uh, begins not only the stanza, but each verse in that particular stanza. And uh, the, the Kof stanza from last week is a reference to uh, the kind of the back of the head and how uh, the psalmist wants to remember and reflect on uh, the faithfulness of God. Again, trusting that God would be near to him. Uh, this particular stanza uh, also is a reference to the head, but it's not the back of the head. It's the front of the head expressing the psalmist's desire uh, for, for the Lord to lead him through uh, the difficulties that he's facing. And, and oh, how we need, as the people of God, a great leader. And by the grace of God, that's exactly what we find. And so uh, the psalmist goes before the Lord in this particular part of the chapter, uh, seeking the Lord's uh, leadership, and that's what we'll find. And so we'll uh, pick up on verse uh, 153 and read through 160, and then we'll unpack it. Uh, the psalmist says, Look on my affliction. And deliver me, for I do not forget your law. Plead my cause and redeem me. Give me life according to your promise. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. 
Great is your mercy, O Lord. Give me life according to your rules. Many are my persecutors and my adversaries, but I do not swerve from your testimonies. I look at the faithless with disgust because they do not keep your commands. Consider how I love your precepts. Give me life according to your steadfast love. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. And so this morning, we're going to unpack three specific truths, but we're going to do so in light of the beauty of the gospel and the blessings that we have because of the finished work of Christ. And the first uh, part that we see here is, in Christ, I have a caregiver. I have a caregiver. Now, oftentimes, we think of a, a need for a caregiver when we get older, right? But can I tell you something? Rest in the fact that you have an amazing caregiver because of the finished work of Christ. Rest in that uh, today. Uh, The fact that we have a caregiver as a Christ follower means that we can trust that as God leads us, even through the difficulties and the challenges of life, he will care for me and he will care for you. Notice where we find the psalmist again in the first part of verse 153. He says, look on my affliction and deliver me. So the psalmist is in a place of affliction, and we've seen this over and over again. We don't know exactly what that affliction is. We don't know exactly how that affliction came about, uh, but we do know that this affliction is beginning to weigh him down. The burden is beginning to begin to be great. The word affliction speaks of being bowed down or hunched over because of the weight or the burden in which you are carrying. And so the psalmist is needing the Lord to lead him to a place of rescue, to lead him to a place of deliverance. And the psalmist cries out, look. And it's a command. In fact, in this particular stanza, there are eight commands that the psalmist gives to the Lord. Now the question is, why is the psalmist asking the Lord or commanding the Lord uh, to meet him in that place? That word look is a very important word. It's a word that, that describes uh, uh, an aspect of seeing something with the intent, the purpose to act. So he's saying, Lord, look at my affliction with the purpose of doing what? Intervening with the purpose of acting. Look at my circumstances. I need you to intervene. I need you to care for me. I need you to provide what is needed. And what's interesting about the word look here, it's the same word that's used in Genesis 22. It's an amazing passage in scripture. It's when God commanded Abraham to take his one and only son Isaac up to Mount Moriah to make a sacrifice. And they begin their journey And the scripture says that on that third day that Abraham looked up, the same word that's used here, and saw the place that God had put before him. And so uh, Abraham and Isaac, they go, they go to the place that God wanted them to go, and everything is going well. Until the scripture says that Isaac says to his father, Father, the fire and the wood we have, but where is the sacrifice? Where is the sacrifice? And what was Abraham's response? Genesis 22, verse 8, the scripture says, Abraham said, God will provide. That's the same word for look, by the way, in Psalm uh, 119, verse 153. So underline that. That's important. God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, 
together. So again, that phrase, will provide, is the same word for look in verse 153. God will look and see the situation that they are in, and he and his grace will provide what is needed. And what is their response? Their response is a response of faith. So they went, both of them, together. They are trusting that the Lord will care for them and give them what is needed in that time of need. And when the sacrifice needed to be made, at the very right time, God shows tremendous care by giving them exactly what is needed. You skip down to Genesis 22, verses 13 and 14. The scripture says, And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And that phrase, the Lord will provide, is the name Jehovah Jireh. God will provide. With great compassion and care, God in his faithfulness is always providing what is so desperately needed. When you fast forward just a little bit in Israel's history, God's people are under uh, captivity to the Egyptians. And what does God do in that time? Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 through 8, the scripture says, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the same word for look in verse 153. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have what? I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. God sees their affliction. He hears their cries and with great love and care, the scripture says, he comes down to meet their need. And how does he do that? He comes before Moses. Remember the burning bush God reveals himself to Moses through the burning bush and God equips Moses to go before Pharaoh and through God's care and great divine intervention, the captives are set free. Now this picture of Moses is just a picture, right? Moses is a picture of the greater one to come. In a far greater way, God the Father sends God the Son, Jesus Christ, to us to set us free. Why? Because he cares. When Jesus comes and looks at the circumstances of the people in his day, uh, the scripture says in Matthew 9, 36, I love this verse, when he, speaking of Jesus, saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Now we have to understand the buildup of what's happening in Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, over and over again, uh, Jesus is displaying the fact that he is the Messiah. He is the promised Messiah. And how does he go about proving that he is the promised Messiah? He does that by performing a miracle, one miracle after another. Jesus is showing that he has authority over every disease, disability, disaster, demon, the devil, and death itself. Jesus is the great rescuer. He is the promised savior. Jesus is bringing life into death. He's bringing healing into sickness, bringing sight into blindness, bringing hearing into deafness. And people are hearing and seeing about the work of Christ. That's what's happening here. Historians tell us that during this time, there would have been approximately 3 million people in this particular area. Now, we don't know how many of those 3 million heard or saw the miracles of Jesus, 
But what we do know is that when Jesus sees the, the massive crowd, he sees the people. And he has great compassion. Uh, the word compassion is a, is a word that means to be deeply moved at the pit of your stomach. A compassion that hurts because of what you see, what you're experiencing. And why is Jesus so hurt by what he sees? Because he knows that the people are what? They're harassed. That word harassed means that they're exhausted. Right? These people are tired. Right? They're at the end of the rope. They're worn out. They have been beaten down by many, many things. Their, their own sin, the effects of religion without relationship, all these different things. And the scripture says that they're helpless. They're defeated. There's nothing they can do to make the things right. And they're like sheep without a shepherd, without guidance, nowhere to turn. They're, they're, the, the lack of leadership was great. They needed guidance. And that's what the shepherd does. The shepherd comes and protects and cares and feeds. That's what he's offering to them when he comes. And God in his grace shows tremendous care by providing them what they needed most. They needed a shepherd, right? They needed a leader. And this reminds us as followers of Christ that because we have the great shepherd, guess what? He will meet us where we are time and time again. Why? Because he cares. I love what Paul says when he's writing to the church in Philippi and uh, Philippians 4, 19 through 20, he says, and my God, Paul is making it personal. And this is huge news. Why? Because in Philippi, there was a lot of people worshiping uh, all these false gods, not necessarily the church, but the, the culture in which they're living in. And Paul wants to make it very clear. My God will supply every need of yours, right? And that, that supplying every need is always in line with God's will, and it's a constant promise. Why? How do we know? According to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. In other words, he is able to do far more than we could ever expect or dream of, right? That's the type of supply that he offers. And to that, Paul opens up with a doxology, a praise to our God and Father. Be glory forever and ever. Amen. Praise the Lord. That the Lord, according to his will, will supply everything that we need. All of it comes from God to those who are his, right? To those have, who have a relationship with him based on the finished work of Christ. This means as a Christ follower, whatever the affliction, whatever the suffering, whatever the grief, whatever the struggle, our hearts and our minds can be settled. Why? Because we trust that God will supply all of our needs because he cares for us. He will graciously supply whatever is needed according to his great will. And where's Paul when he's writing this? He, he's in prison. And this is his words of hope to the church in Philippi. So the question for us this morning is, do we trust in God's care for us? Make it personal. In your season right now, whatever it is that you're walking through or what you just walked through or what you may walk through tomorrow, do you truly trust that God cares for you? The same compassion that Jesus had for the great crowds. In a far greater sense, because you have a relationship with him, he has tremendous compassion on you. The second thing that we see in this uh, particular passage, a blessing that we receive in Christ is in Christ, I have an advocate. I have an advocate. Praise God, we have an advocate. As a Christ follower, I can trust that as God leads me, he will be my advocate. And this is the prayer that the psalmist has. Again, another command that he expresses in verse 154, the first part. He says, plead my cause and redeem me. Now, why does the psalmist give that type of command? Well, he says in verse 157, 
Many are my persecutors and my adversaries. So the, the psalmist is surrounded by persecutors, ad, ad, adver, uh, adversaries, those who are against him. They're, they're closing in tighter and tighter. That's what we saw uh, last week. And the psalmist, again, needs divine intervention. He needs someone to be his advocate. He's defenseless. And he needs someone to defend him. Someone to plead his case. Someone to be his representative in the midst of his enemies. And the psalmist recognizes that he needs someone outside of himself. And how do we know? The Hebrew word for redeem. It means kinsman redeemer. That's the word. The Hebrew word here is kinsman redeemer. You see in the Old Testament, God in his grace gave provision for those who were the most vulnerable to ensure that they had someone to advocate for them in their weakness. And it would be the closest male relative. That's what it would be. And they would be their advocate. They would pay the necessary fees that were necessary in order to be that kinsman redeemer, to be that advocate. The kinsman redeemer had to be the nearest relative, had to be willing to redeem, and had to have the power to redeem and the resources to redeem. And guess what? That's what God does for his people. For example, when God's people are in captivity to the Babylonians, God reminded his people that he would be their advocate. He would be their defense. He would be their kinsman redeemer. In Jeremiah chapter 50, verse 34, their redeemer, the same word, kinsman redeemer, their redeemer is strong. The Lord of hosts is his name, and he will surely plead their cause. Now think about the time in which Jeremiah is writing the great empire of Babylon. The empire was massive and strong and mighty. King Nebuchadnezzar was at the top of his game, if you will, the most powerful king that the world knew. And God says, I am greater and I am more powerful. To the weak and defenseless, I will be your advocate. And in Christ Jesus, we have a mighty advocate. We have a mighty advocate in the Holy Spirit. When Jesus is writing uh, to or speaking to his disciples before he goes to the cross, he says this in John 14, verse 16. He says, And I, Jesus, will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. The word helper there, Greek word paraclete, is the word advocate, to be with you forever. The scripture says, Who is this help, helper? We know in verse 26, but the helper, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said uh, to you. And so Jesus says, I promise to send you what? An advocate, a helper, the Holy Spirit of God, who will be with you, who will come alongside you for how long? Forever. That means when times are great and when times are difficult, the advocate is on our side. And what does the Spirit do as an advocate for us? Well, Paul writes about some of the aspects of what the Spirit does in Romans 8, verses 26 through 27. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for, we, uh, for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The context of Romans 8 in this part of the passage is about a time of great suffering. And what does the Spirit do as our advocate? He meets us in our weakness and makes us strong. He intercedes on our behalf. He prays prayers that we do not even know or have the strength to pray. When the burden of life is so great, 
when we don't know what to pray, the Spirit of God advocates on our behalf. He prays on our behalf. When we are overcome in those moments, at times in life, overcome with guilt and shame, the Spirit advocates on our behalf. In Romans 8, it says, crying out what? Abba, Father, reminding us what? That we are a child of the Lord. The Spirit is our guarantee. He comforts us with great forgiveness and empowers us towards holiness. So the Holy Spirit is our advocate, but Jesus Christ is also our advocate. Romans 8, 34. Who is to condemn? The answer, nobody. Why? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of, the, uh, hand of God, who indeed is doing what? He's interceding for us. He's our advocate. Now, that's a critical question that Paul proposes. Who is to condemn? Have you ever experienced a time in life as a follower of Christ where you just felt condemned because of where you were as a follower of Christ? The weight of that. You go to this passage, and the scripture says what? Nobody can condemn you. Romans 8, chapter 1 and 2, or ver- chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. Read that. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And why is that the case? Because Jesus Christ himself intercedes on our behalf. He is our advocate. And I love what the author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. He says, uh, consequently, he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make what? Intercession for them. Now, what does Jesus mean when he says he's able to save to the uttermost? Now, keep in mind the context. The author of Hebrews is writing primarily to an audience that comes from Jewish roots that have been uh, saved by the grace of God, but yet there's that tension, that temptation to go back to those Jewish practices and forget about the grace and the beauty of the gospel. So he's writing to believers and he's saying what? That, he, that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost. That word uttermost can mean two different things. It can mean uh, completely or always. Completely or always. So which one is it? I think based on the context, it's both. Listen. The fact that, that Jesus intercedes on our behalf means that he is able to save both completely and always, forever. How is this true? What does the scripture say? Since he, Jesus, always lives to make intercession for them. Our acceptance before God is fully grounded in the sufficiency of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We do not put our case in the hands of someone we think can plead our case and win We put our case in the hands of the only one who can plead our case, and he always wins. That is your advocate, and that is my advocate in Christ Jesus. There is never a point, not for one second, where he fails to plead your case and win. And there is never a point, never a moment, that his saving power is not completely and fully and forever on you. So in those moments where you feel condemned because of your season, you remind yourself, I have an advocate in Christ Jesus. The Father planned it, the Spirit secured it, and the Son accomplished it. What else do I need? Praise God, praise God. So what about when we do sin, right? I love what John says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. He says, my little children, so he's speaking to uh, followers of Christ. Uh, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin, right? So 
part of the gospel reminds us that because of the victory that we have in Christ, the fact that the Holy Spirit uh, is on our side, our advocate, we have provision not to sin, right? Do you know that today? That you've given sufficient provision in Christ not to sin, meaning you have a choice, right? However, John knows what you and I know, right? We're not perfect, right? So then listen to what he says. If any, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So we have provision when we do sin. Jesus Christ is the righteous one. He is the only one who can be labeled that term, the righteous one. He is the satisfactory payment. He is our full and final substitute. And because of that, he is our advocate. He pleads our case over and over and over again. And when you get to the book of Revelation, here's what you find. You find that Satan, the great accuser, is doing what? He's accusing you. He's before the Father, accusing you of every sin, not just behavioral, but the things that you think and the things that you say. And here's what we need to understand. Every time Satan presents his endless scroll of charges against you and against me, and guess what? It's, it's a long scroll. Jesus isn't saying we are innocent. He is saying your sin has already been paid for in full. That's what he's saying. Yes, that's true, but. Yes, that's true, but. Yes, that's true, but. He is our defense attorney. The assurance of your salvation, the assurance of my salvation doesn't come down to me. It comes down to the fact that we have a mighty advocate. 1 John 4, 4 says, little children, you are from God. Again, John is writing to the early church to give them assurance of salvation and have overcome them. The, the them there is the evil one, the evil forces of the world. How is it that we've overcome? For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Praise God for that. The power of Christ in me. Do you believe that today? Do you live today trusting in the fact that you have an advocate in Christ, an advocate through the Spirit, that no matter what, he is on your side, he's pleading your case, and because he pleads your case, he never, ever loses, and the verdict always comes back, not guilty, not guilty, not guilty. Lastly, the psalmist teaches us that in Christ, I have life. I have life. As a Christ follower, I can trust that as God leads me, he will give me life. Three times in our passage, that's what the psalmist cries out. Give me life, give me life, give me life. We see this in verse 154. Give me life according to your promise. We see this in verse 156. Give me life according to your rules. We see this in verse 159. Give me life according to your steadfast love. So the psalmist is asking for what? Life and revival, renewal based on the word of God and the character of God. He says, give me life based on your promise, based on your rules, based on your steadfast love. And this reminds you and I as followers of Christ that true life comes from the word of God and the God of the word. That's the only way that true life comes. And this is the great problem that people in the world face. That's what he expresses in verse 155. He says, salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. And it's in that moment that you wonder, what is the psalmist's response to that? Do you recognize today that salvation is far from those because they have turned their backs on God? What is our response to that? I love what the psalmist's response is. He said in verse 158, he says, I look at the faithless with what? Disgust, because they do not keep your commandments. Now, let's understand this Hebrew word for disgust. It can mean two things. It can either mean uh, have an intense dislike, 
or it could mean have an intense grieving. So which one is it? Why can't it be both, right? Why can't the psalmist look at the things of the world and the people who are living according to what they want and have an intense feeling of dislike and grief at the same time? In other words, because people choose to live contrary to the word of God, can we not be repulsed by sin? The scripture says we are to abhor it. We are to hate sin. And at the same time, can we not have a grief, grieving for what they're missing out on? So it's a lovingly upsetness, if you will. I don't even know if upsetness is a word, but we're going with it this morning. Why? Because they have not received the Lord as their Savior. They have no one to deliver them from captivity. No one to care for them in their affliction. No one to plead their case. I mean, when you hit rock bottom, don't you praise God that he cares for you and that he's your advocate? Now, you take that same scenario with someone who does not know the Lord. Can you imagine the emptiness that is there, the helplessness that is there, and the hopelessness that is there? And that's what the psalmist is gripped by. He's gripped by the character of God. Listen to what he says in verse 156. He says, great is your mercy, O Lord. That phrase, great is your mercy, can also mean many are your mercy. You see, the psalmist isn't responding towards those who do not have a relationship with the Lord with callousness or arrogance, thinking, oh, I'm better than you. Why don't you be like me? That's not his response at all. In fact, he's looking in the mirror at himself and he's recognizing that that there once was a time where I was part of the wicked. There once was a time when I had no advocate. No deliverer, no caregiver. But because of the great and many mercies of God, I now have life in him. Brother and sister in Christ, never lose sight of the beauty of what it means to be a child of God. You know, when you look at John John 3, verse 16 through 19, listen to what the scripture says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only, uh, one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life, right? We know that one most often. But then he goes on to say, verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the one and only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Listen, praise God every day for his grace and mercy in your life. Thank you that in my darkness you have shown me the light of the gospel and by grace through faith I am saved. You see, Christ at the cross has removed the condemnation that I deserve and made his word sweet to my heart, my ears, my mind, and my eyes and it's in Christ that I now have life. Is that true of you today? Do you have life because of the finished work of Christ? I love what John says in 1 John verse, uh, chapter 5, verses 11 to 12. He says, and this is the testimony, and what a great testimony it is, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. Listen, eternal life is a gift of God. It's not a reward, right? It's a gift of God. Eternal life doesn't mean I have to wait 
till I die and go to heaven. Eternal life begins at the very moment that you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. It's a relationship that must and can be enjoyed today. And it's that eternal life that when Jesus comes into your life, he radically, radically changes your heart. You know, when Paul writes to the church in Corinth, he says this. He says, beginning in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. It's pretty weighty. He says, or do you not, again, he's writing to the church, so he's talking to believers. He says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, uh, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And you're asking yourself, well, where's the hope of the gospel here, right? Verse 11, and such were some of you. In other words, that's, that's who you used to be, right? But you were washed and you were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the spirit of your God. Do you see how the Lord brings life out of that death, right? He brings life out of that death. Behavioral change is possible. Why? Because the heart is radically changed. And a heart that has been changed by the Lord desires to live according to the word. The psalmist says, look on my affliction and deliver me. But what? Verse 153, for I do not forget your law. He goes on to say in verse 157, but I do not swerve from your testimony. So here's the psalmist in the midst of all that. He's committed to the word of God to the point where he says in verse 159, consider how I love your precepts. Why is he committed to the word of God? Why is he not forgetting the word of God? Why does he love the precepts of God? Because that's where he knows true life is found. So much so, he says at the end there, verse 160, the sum of your word is truth and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. From beginning to end, the psalmist by faith is leaning on God's truth. Why? Because he knows that he knows that that's the one who cares for him. He knows that's the one who is his advocate. He knows that's where true life comes from. And here's the reality for you and I as followers of Christ. Uh, we don't live in a small little uh, box that is uh, protected the way that we would like, right? We have an enemy that fights against us every day. In John 10, 10, Jesus says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Think about what Jesus came to do. He came to destroy the works of the devil. And he came to give you life, to revive that life, and to give you a life to be lived in the way that honors him. So the scripture is teaching us today. He's inviting us to re receive him, to rest in him. The question is, have you done that today? In your season of where you're at this morning, as a follower of Christ, where do you need the care of the Lord today? Will you, like the psalmist, cry out to the Lord and say, look, look, see me in my affliction and trust that God will meet you where you are and he will provide what is necessary in the moment of that need. Maybe you're here this morning as a follower of Christ and you've lost sight of the fact that you have an advocate. You have an advocate in the spirit. You have an advocate in Christ. Praise God for that. Do you wrestle with that question? Am I condemned? Listen, again, with the finished work of Christ and trust in him, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
And he has given you the spirit of God that cries out, Abba, Father. It confirms to your soul that you are a child of God. Now, that doesn't mean that you live in your sin, right? Again, because what does the scripture teach us? That in Christ, we have life. We have life eternal. We have life abundant. So maybe you're in a place, a season of life this morning, and there's some places in your life that aren't in line with God's word. Would you be willing to confess and repent and have a renewed trust in the gospel this morning? Maybe you've never received Christ as your savior. Man, what an awesome time to do that. To know that in Christ, you are mightily cared for. In Christ, you have an amazing advocate. And in Christ, you can truly have uh, life. Uh, We're going to sing, come to the altar.